today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The legislature resumes today for a summer session. Uh, what are the top priorities? Uh, well, I guess it's the strike at York University, it's cap and trade, and of course a wind farm project. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. What do you think the Queen and Donald Trump will talk about on Friday? Uh, I have to admit, I hadn't even thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to be a fly on the wall of that room? Well, who knows? Maybe the Queen will ask some sort of deep-cut details about her favorite episodes of The Apprentice. I don't know. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, and he'll and he'll think that she's the one actually starring in The Crown. Anyway, I digress. Uh, summer session uh, starting. How often does this happen? When does it happen? Well, it happens really rarely. Uh, I mean, I think in this case, because we have fixed election dates in Ontario, and we ran an election at the end of the spring, which is a time that's important for a government to finish passing its budgetary legislation. You know, losing that that space in the in the spring means that it's more likely that a new government will have to come in and make a few changes uh, to laws, particularly if it wishes to to act in the sort of the first uh, six months or so of its mandate. So. We may see it more often. I mean, usually we get situations, you know, such as one of the the pieces why the legislature is going back, and that's if the government has to pass uh, back-to-work legislation. So, I mean, we've seen governments go back in the summer uh, around a number of, you know, transit or garbage strikes uh, in in a similar kind of vein. Um, But, yeah, it's a a relatively rare thing to happen. How long will this last? I suspect a couple of weeks. Uh, I mean, the legislating back of the teaching assistants at York University would probably take, you know, three days or so of or two days of sitting, depending a bit on how they they work the clock. Presumably, uh, the NDP will show a uh, kind of a display of holding it up, but I mean, it will all be theater and, and done in a few days. I guess what will take maybe a bit longer is some of the other uh, pieces of legislation they hope to to push through. Uh, around questions like, you know, cancelling wind, wind farm contracts or if there's specific legislative changes they have to make to uh, pull Ontario out of the cap-and-trade system. Who will be there? Will this be a full house? Well, I suspect that since uh, it's, you know, a newly elected uh, legislature, there's a lot of new members, uh, both in the government and the opposition side, because the Liberals were really wiped out in the process. Uh, the parties will probably want to make sure that their new MPs are there and learning the ropes. And uh, in some ways, it's a great little uh, camp for them to learn uh, parliamentary procedure and, and how they a parliamentary through. summer camp. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, maybe they'll get a camp shirt. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so I suspect it will also serve a purpose for the parties trying to uh, get their you know their new members up and running and figuring out well how do you actually manage the house business in you know relationship to other responsibilities you have for instance back in your constituency what do the liberals do now uh is it their job to keep uh the the next government honest or is that the ndp's job and the liberals are in rebuilding mode and should probably spend their time looking inward w- where do they fit in all of this that's hard to say. I mean, uh, I, mean I guess we'll see what their strategy is. Their, their attempt to woo uh, the Green Party leader doesn't seem to have uh, succeeded. They might try to find some unhappy conservative or new Democrat to give them a uh, party status. So they may have a bit of a, a job internally. But uh, I mean, I think uh, for the big thing, the big issue is how are they going to be relevant in the public discourse? And so part of that involves rebuilding the party as a party so that it's present and has a capacity to fight the next election. But it's hard to do that if you're entirely missing from the discussion of the day. And so 
I think we'll we'll find them trying to find creative ways to get whoever they choose as their next leader uh, into the news, uh, commenting on things that are happening at Queen's Park. I mean, they can't be entirely absent. I mean, one strategy they might try to do as part of a party rebuilding exercise is to find an issue where they've got a distinctive point of view different from what the NDP is pushing as, you know, opposition to the, the Conservatives and to really use that as a basis to organize people or find people who would be willing to support the Liberals again. Will that be a big challenge for them in uh, moving forward, Peter? Uh, because they went so far to the left and, and tried to cut the NDP off at the pass, that, that they're going to have to now do something to differentiate themselves from them, as, now that NDP is the official opposition. Yeah, I mean, I think they will have a hard time finding a space for themselves. And, I mean, particularly since the NDP is official opposition, presumably is going to try and occupy some space in the middle of the uh in the middle of the spectrum and trying to to push the government so you know what will be the space for the liberals i think a lot will depend on who they choose as a leader I and mean, i think they also have to deal with a certain amount of collateral damage that comes out of uh, people reflecting on their 15 years in in power so even people who were favorable to certain things they were uh you know promising or doing will begin to say well wait a second did they actually do enough of that? Did they actually nail it down, or was it very easy for the the Ford government to come and you know change the direction in which this goes? And so I, th- I think people will also come to have a different impression of that when government, as they see it a bit through the the lens of well, what did they do that was lasting, and what did they do which was you know a good show but wasn't actually. Uh, you know, a policy that was going to to be transformative. How does the NDP take advantage of the opportunity? Well, I mean, I think for the NDP, they have to make the case that they are the uh, the alternative to the Conservatives, and that involves doing more than be doing a good show in the House. I think they've probably learned from the Tom Mulcair years uh, federally that, you know, winning question period on a regular basis uh, isn't going to do a lot for you if you've got no electoral organization in important parts of the province. So I suspect for the, the NDP, a significant part of their uh, their work will be involved in trying to build a, their strengths in the 905. And as part of that, I think one of their challenges will be to find a way of containing outrage. Uh, I mean, we've seen, you know, the, the Ford government do a number of relatively small changes in its first weeks in office, and each one, you know, blows up in social media about being the worst thing ever done. And so to find a way of taking, uh, you know, that sort of the outrage that politics seems to engender in our current period and forming that into kind of more coherent lines of uh, criticism and proposition of alternatives to the, the Ford government will be a real challenge for for uh, Horvath and her party, particularly since she has a lot of new ND, uh, NDP MPPs who chances are will be, you know, not that disciplined and be willing to chase down every single piece of outrage. So I think a big challenge for the NDP is to find a way to be uh, kind of coherent and consistent, but to find some real strong lines of critique and attack and not be led by this sort of daily outrage. Uh, obviously, the three main uh, objectives of this summer session, legislation to get York students back to work, cancel cap and trade, and cancel the White Pines Wind Farm Project, which I guess was uh, 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 formally started or started the process during the actual election. How, how are these issues going to play out with Ontarians, um, considering what the election campaign was all about? Well, I mean, I think of those uh, three, the only one that's really going to be central to the narrative for the Conservatives is uh, going to be the one around uh, the killing of the cap-and-trade system. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really been a defining line. And 
I think it's, you know, an area where they'll have to make a series of arguments through the summer. I mean, certainly a number of their supporters did quite well out of uh, the different home rebates programs. I mean, they, they kind of criticize it as help to the wealthy, but it was the wealthy who elected them in part. So, you know, they'll have to, I think, you know, come up with uh, some stories around that that are convincing. Uh, and to deal with the kind of fear that's been put out there, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't tell you one way or the other, that this is really going to be an open bar for lawyers. On the one hand, you know, by firms that have purchased large amounts of carbon credits, uh, potentially suing the government for a compensation. You know, and secondarily, this plan to put uh, $40 million aside uh, to fight the federal government in court. Um, so, I mean, I think Ford, you know, has been able to play on the sort of populist side of uh, the end of cap and trade, but you know, to the extent that it comes to be seen as an open bar for lawyers, it may be you know a bit harder. So I think you know that's going to be a key part of the of the session is to really continue to try and, and uh, draft up that idea of the end of cap and trade as as important. The York strike is important for uh, you know a number of people in North Toronto in particular. Uh, it's probably useful in framing the NDP as you know being willing to stand for workers' rights regardless of you know the inconvenience it causes to students. But I think that's going to be a kind of a, a two-day news item rather than something that lasts. Uh, how do governments change past direction without going through this? I mean, you know, we've, we're certainly hearing lots about, oh my goodness, we're going to get all this because of loss of cap and trade. So do we keep doing something that, that that obviously some disagree with? Do we find a new way? How do governments that are coming in to replace others that have started strategies, how do you change direction? Well, I mean, I think you... I mean, ultimately, I mean, having made the decision that we were going to, you know, honor uh, property rights uh, in these situations and, you know, in a fairly uh, strong sense of uh, compensation, uh, essentially it becomes part of the cost of doing business. Uh, And so, you know, you're on the hook for these things and you have to make the case that ultimately the Ontarians were willing to accept the price of that uh, to to have that outcome. And so, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time We've had governments come into to play and they, you know, uh, question, say, a privatization deal or some kind of public-private partnership. And, you know, as these things go, you know, the sides lawyer up and some kind of decision is made uh, about uh, the compensation. I mean, the alternative to that, presumably, is to do more things uh, through the public sector rather than through these private contracts. But, you know, there, too, there's costs in transition if you start building something and then you decide to jettison it. But, I mean, that's part of democratic politics is, you know, there's, there is a part of inefficiency in it in that, uh, you know, the planning beyond a four-year time horizon uh, is, is fraught with this extra risk that you might have a change of government and a change of decision about uh, this being a way to go. Do you think the firing of the uh, head of Hydro One, how far will that go? Obviously, Ford seems to be backtracking on that now. Opposition is saying, hey, you said you were going to do this. Uh, Does that mean, what's the opposition's role here? Do they force them into decisions? Do they force uh, the, the, the leading party into decisions that it said it was going to take, even though they strongly disagree with them? Or how do they position themselves on this? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to know how that could play as a winner for the opposition parties, because, I mean, it was a foolish promise made by uh, by the Conservatives in terms of what the actual governance structure of, of that entity was and the sort of limited capacity to actually do the firing. But clearly it was a winner on the, uh, you know, for the, the base of the Conservative Party. And so, in a way, you know, to say, well, you were being 
non-genuine, right? You were promising <laughs> something you knew you couldn't deliver. You, you have know, to fire that guy. You said you were going to. Yeah, you said it, but it was just a political ploy because your base, uh, you know, was dumb enough to believe it. I mean, that's not a really winning political argument in terms of moving yeah. uh, voters, right, by saying, you know, you, you, you shouldn't have been uh, so... Uh, you know, we told you that uh, you couldn't do it, and you were you were dumb enough to believe him. I mean, that's the kind of you know, calling voters stupid is never a, a useful strategy, I think, for parties. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not clear really how how that could be played, except in a kind of softer sense that, well, can you really believe this guy if he makes these promises? And then, as you know, it doesn't seem that they were genuine promises. So, if they can make it about authenticity rather than the gullibility of voters, and maybe there's a, there's a win for the opposition. But I think it's hard to kind of push. You know, how do you how do you make that case? You're talking about voter gullibility. Is it really that, or is it a change in attitude? They don't care if you changing the CEO, and yeah, if it's going to cost more, it's certainly not worth worth it. Is it the change in attitude they're looking at? Is it gullibility, or is it a change in attitude? And is gullibility a word? <laughs> taking me back to when I was a kid. You know, that gullibility, but. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think was a change in attitude. I think it's it's maybe less a change in attitude than what did that promise do? Like when it was when it was sold, was it really being made as a promise that people thought it was a kind of solemn thing, or was it a way of? I mean, to sort of use a wrestling analogy of getting some heat, right? It was a way yeah. of uh, mm-hmm. allowing people to unleash a certain sense of frustration and to say that you're going to fire someone. You know, it's a bit like telling a kid that they've got to go to their room. It's usually kind of in a moment of anger, and it sort of has a, a particular kind of play to it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it probably worked in those in, in that way. And so, again, it maybe makes it harder to, to make an argument about a lack of authenticity in it. And similarly, people who've elected a government, you know, once the government has changed, they're presumably happy with the outcome. And so some of these specifics become maybe less important to them. Uh, you know, as opposed to more specific deliverables around things like, you know, reduction in gas taxes or changes in regulations uh, around uh, access to cheap beer and so on. How long will the Ford honeymoon last, do you think? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I, my sense is that he doesn't have a huge honeymoon. I mean, he was elected with sort of about two votes in five. Is it over already? Well, I think those two voters in five are still really happy with him. So for them, uh, the honeymoon, you know, hasn't gone uh, often when you see a change in government, though, there's a kind of broader uh, social happiness. I mean, that you, you'd see polls where, you know, a party gets 40% of the votes, but for the first few months, like 50 or 60% of the population say, actually, hey, here's a new government, let's give it a chance, let's see what it can do, we're happy for the change. Uh, I think in this case there's been less of that, and so what you probably do have is a base that's uh, still very positive, perhaps more positive than, than often uh, when you get the change, but uh, the sort of broader capacity uh, to, to build social gold, goodwill has been less present. And so, yeah, I think in some ways that's already over. But, uh, you know, to the extent that he simply only needs those two votes in five to get reelected, he's still doing well in, in keeping his base, I think, with the moves he's made to date. Can we really talk about how someone was elected, though? It seems we have this all the time after an election when the losing party complains about how someone was elected. Was, like, hasn't everybody else been elected the same way? Yeah, and I think that's kind of an ongoing issue about the legitimacy of our governments, right? That we always have uh, parties that have very, you know, well, not always, occasionally we're in minority situations, but we regularly have governments who don't face a very strong uh, opposition uh, in terms of the decisions they're making. 
um, you know, because they have a majority of the seats in the legislature, even if they represent about 40% of the population. And it's the same kind of, uh, you know, issue that is facing the Trudeau government at the moment. Yeah, I mean, does it actually prevent them from acting? No, I mean, they it's as good as any other in terms of their capacity to exercise that power. I mean, the bigger question is ultimately, though, what does it take to, you know, hold on to the power? And, you know, who does that government have to please? And in the case of, you know, Ford, again, he can run a, a government that's unpopular with 60% of the population, as long as it's very popular with the remaining, uh, you know, two-fifths. And so it'll be interesting to see what his uh, strategy is going to be in the coming years. Is it really going to be to try and hold on to that extra 4 or 5% of voters that he, you know, that distinguished his win from Hudak's terrible loss? Uh, or does he have a, a different strategy for how he's going to sustain that level of electoral support? Peter Grave has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Bank of Canada has chosen to raise its key uh, lending rate today. And, of course, there's been chatter about this for a long time and since months since the last one. Uh, first time in six months this has happened. Canadian press reporter Terry Pedwell says the Bank of Canada is raising its benchmark interest rate by a quarter of a point despite the trade uncertainty. The central bank says persistent trade issues between Canada and the U.S., including the current tariff battle, will have a negative impact on the Canadian economy over the next couple of years. But it predicts that will largely be offset by the positive impact of higher oil prices. Looking ahead, the bank says it expects higher interest rates will be necessary over time to keep inflation near its target. However, it intends to continue raising rates slowly and based on economic data. All right, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Jean-Paul Lamb, Assistant Professor of Economics at uh, University of Waterloo and formerly an assistant to Assistant Chief Economist at the Bank of Canada and is with us now. Jean-Paul, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, Considering where we are with the economics of the world and trade and tariffs and and, and the uh, rhetoric surrounding Donald Trump. Uh, are you surprised to see this increase? No, I, I'm not surprised to see this increase. Uh, you, we have to remember that interest rates were at uh, 1.25%, at least uh, the overnight rate. So we started at a fairly low level. And we've been having uh, very good economic data coming in showing that the economy is very strong, unemployment is is low, and um, inflation, which is the main concern of the Bank of Canada, has been creeping up over the last uh, six months and is now above the 2% benchmarks. So those are the reasons why uh, the bank thinks that it is appropriate to uh, raise interest rates today. But at the same time, they are aware of the uncertainties surrounding uh, trade talks, and they know that going forward, this will have uh, at least uncertainty coming from trade will have uh, a negative impact on the economy. What's different this time than last time when Polos didn't raise them? I think the, the main difference is the stronger data that we got and the fact that investment and exports came out to be stronger than expected despite the rhetoric and the tough trade talks we've been hearing from uh, from Trump um, recently. The other sort of news that we've had is higher oil prices, which will uh, increase inflation in the short run, and this will sort of 
prompted the, the Bank of Canada to increase its uh, benchmark interest rate. Uh, I'm guessing this data uh, doesn't have or doesn't include information in regard to the tariffs when they kick in. What happens when we start to feel the effects of these tariffs? Absolutely right. The, the data doesn't, have any, uh, doesn't show any effects of, of the tariffs yet. So we have to bear in mind that the tariffs right now are on a limited number of goods, mostly steel, aluminum, and lumber. And the impact of these tariffs are going to be, right now, as, as expected, are going to be uh, fairly small on the Canadian economy. So the bank, in its monetary policy report today, predicted that these tariffs will uh, weigh on on investment and exports going forward, and it might reduce uh, GDP by about two-thirds of a percent uh, by 2020. And here we're talking about $12 billion reduction in GDP for a $1.8 trillion economy. So you can see the effects are fairly minimal at this stage. However, I think we should pay a lot of attention to what will go on with NAFTA and whether or not Trump will impose further tariffs on Canada. If that's the case, then this is a very different story because then the impact of these tariffs of a possible NAFTA renegotiation that will change significantly how we do trade with the United States, these changes might have a much bigger impact on the Canadian economy going forward. Well, if tariffs kick in and prices go up, won't that send inflation up? Therefore, the rates will have to go up to combat inflation. So these uh, these tariffs can be interpreted as a tax on, on consumer and will definitely have an impact on um, on the prices of goods. And again, we have to sort of look at where on on which goods the tariffs are being imposed going forward. That said, there are other mitigating factors that might uh, offset the increases in prices. Wage growth in the economy remains fairly subdued, so the cost for firms of hiring new employees uh, remains fairly low. Um, so that's good news for consumers in terms of inflation going forward. The, I think the biggest impact on prices right now will, will come from the cost of energy. Oil prices have been going up for the last couple of months, and we will see the impact of higher prices at the pump and also for any, any goods that require transportation. Uh, what happens if all of a sudden the auto sector gets dragged into this mess? That's, that's the issue I was talking about early on. I yeah. think that's the big impact on the Canadian economy, especially for Ontario. If the Trump administration starts imposing tariffs on the auto sector, there are reports out there and estimates out there that it will have an impact of about a percent on GDP growth on the Canadian economy and uh, more on the Ontario economy. This is where we start, get, we start getting very worried about trade, about its impact on the economy, about its impact on unemployment. Uh, hopefully we don't go there and, and, and uh, cool heads will prevail. But if that happens, then I think the Bank of Canada will, will change its tone and we might be even looking at lower rates going forward. That was my next question. Could you see, uh, obviously the Bank of Canada is giving themselves a bit of a cushion here in case there, there, there are issues moving forward. Is there a chance they're doing this be, simply because to get us closer to a norm in case they have to come down again? 
So if you look at the, their monetary policy report today, they, they believe that the so-called normal interest rate or the neutral interest rate is around 2.5% to 3%. So this is where, if you go to that, to that rate, this is where inflation remains at 2% and the economy is essentially at full employment. So we are, we are still well below that rate, so there's room for, for increasing rates going forward. I think what prompted them today to increase rates is that they see some inflationary pressures in the economy and inflation has crept above it, the 2% rate. I don't think they are playing the game where they, they want to increase rates so that it gives them more room to decrease rates um, later on if there is a recession. I think their main concern right now is where inflation is going. Should there be a recession, should there be a shock coming from, say, tariffs on the auto sector that drags down the economy, I think they are well prepared and ready to, to bring down rates uh, to help the economy in case something like that happens. We've been talking uh, probably for the last decade now about, well, when the rates were first uh, as low as they are, uh, that uh, this certainly wasn't the new, this certainly wasn't the norm. Now, over a decade, it looks like it has become the norm. Then we've heard um, uh, wranglings that, you know, we've got to get our debt under control, that the Bank of Canada is going to start gradually increasing these rates. Rates are going up. Rates are going up. That's been the message. Is, is that still the message or, in other words, and by that I mean the, the next time there's a, a chance of a rate increase, will we see another one or is that increase rate slowed down a bit? I, I think the message is still uh, regarding the, the, the household debt, which is still very high. So we are still around 170% of debt to income ratio, which is, which is extremely high by historical standards. The good news is that the increases in interest rates and the new mortgage rules that several governments have introduced over the last year, this has helped to slow down the growth rate of consumer credit. So we are seeing what we were expecting to see in terms of the growth rate of of consumer credit. Now, that said, consumer credit is still going at a strong pace and consumers are still heavily indebted. So in case we go into a recession, this might be very bad news for the economy. Regarding your other, your other, the other part of your question, I think the statement of the Bank of Canada today, at the end we have the last paragraph sort of telling markets and people where what they are thinking in terms of the next steps. I think the word measured is, is important in that statement. So they are going to take a very gradual approach in terms of increasing rates. Basically, that means that they are going to look at the data, the incoming data over the next few months, how trade uh, negotiations with the U.S. develop. And they're going to take an inflation, obviously, and they're going to take all of this into account before deciding whether or not to increase rates. Um, I think going forward, what we're going to see is if inflation keeps going up and the trade talks do not deteriorate so that it it won't have a much bigger impact on the Canadian economy than what is predicted by the bank right now, we should see maybe one uh, at the most two more rates increase by the end of the year. Uh, Or maybe, maybe the bank will take a pause as well. So who knows? It all depends on what the data is going to tell us in the next few months.
Uh, as you mentioned earlier, inflation a concern. Also, uh, another reason for the increase, higher expectation of oil prices. What does this mean for the Kinder Morgan pipeline? More attraction to that project? Definitely, there will be more interest in that project, given that the rate of return will probably be, uh, be higher now with higher oil prices. Um, so I think higher oil prices in general is always good for the Canadian economy because it means more investment. And as we are a net exporter of, of oil, we benefit from, from uh, higher oil prices. So projects such as pipelines and investment in the oil and gas industry, we should see uh, much more of that in, in, the next, uh, in the next year and the coming months if oil prices uh, go to $100 or above that. What, uh, what is the state of our energy industry? Many have said that one of the reasons that this pipeline isn't being built isn't so much uh, about the protest and the slowdown from Alberta or, or B.C. governments uh, disputing, but from the interest is not being, this interest simply isn't there because the money isn't there to be made. Uh, is there a future? How strong is the future for, a Canadian, for the Canadian energy industry? I think it all depends on where oil prices are going to settle in the next uh, couple of years. Remember when we had the collapse of oil prices in 2014, so we went from over $100 a barrel to, to close to $25 or even less than that. So that was a significant shock for the oil industry, oil and gas industry in Canada, especially in Alberta. Uh, now we are seeing oil prices creeping up, and that's basically because our demand for oil uh, is benefiting from a world economy that is, that is booming right now. So if we continue on that pace, a lot of investment that were not feasible when oil prices were at $40 now suddenly becomes viable with oil prices at $100. So we might see uh, much uh, higher investment, high investment in, in the oil and gas industry, especially in Alberta, and, and more firms investing in, uh, in, in pumping oil from, from the ground. This could all change, though, in regard to the interest rates in the Bank of Canada's uh, uh, policy moving forward. This can all change if somehow this trade war picks up and, and, and somehow the talk of tariffs, uh, tariffs keeps growing. Absolutely. This, this, can, this will be the path and the speed at which interest rates change in the next quarters in the next year will all depend on how the trade talks with the U.S. unfold. Right now, there is quite a lot of uncertainty regarding where it's going to go, and this is weighing in to some extent on investment and exports. But the good news is that the economy in the U.S. is churning along and has been extremely strong in the last uh, in the last year, and this has benefited Canadian exports and Canadian investment, and this explains why the Canadian economy is doing so well right now. But if we get more tariffs and, and, uh, and taxes and, and, and trade barriers, especially on the auto industry, which is a very important industry for, for Canada or, other, or, or on oil and gas and other, other products that, that come from Canada, then this is going to impact significantly uh, the Canadian economy. And this will change completely the forecast of the Bank of Canada and how much or how many increases we might see in interest rates going forward. So if the NAFTA talks go south, how high could rates go? I think if there are more tariffs on 
goods that we produce, especially auto uh, parts and uh, and the auto sector. And if we um, when after talks go south, as you as you as you mentioned, then we're done for for the year. There won't be any increases in uh, interest rates simply because we mm. are big downside. Uh, risk to the uh, to Canadian GDP, and this is going to weigh on on economic growth. This is going to weigh on unemployment, and ultimately, this is going to to bring inflation down. So, if these things happen, I don't see the Bank of Canada changing interest rate. We might even see some decreases in in the policy rate going forward. When will this? You talked about the U.S. economy chugging along, and and, and how these tariffs are affecting other countries. When will this start affecting? the U.S.? At what point will Americans say, you know what, I don't think this is such a good idea? So right now, the, uh, there are lots of, of talks and a lot of threats. And the, the size of the tariffs compared to the size of the U.S. economy and the size of the goods that we trade around the world, mm. these are still very small. Yeah. Um, so once we sort of move to a threshold where it's going to affect the U.S. economy, especially the, the exports of agricultural products, etc., then I think uh, and it's going to affect the expectations of how well the economy in the U.S. is going to do in terms of investment, etc., then we, we will start seeing a negative impact on the U.S. economy, on, on the stock market, on, and on, on investment. Uh, that's when I think people will start paying a lot of attention to these trade talks in the U.S. Right now, we don't feel it. We don't see any impact. They, are bene- they think that it will benefit them in, in the long run. But uh, at, at least the, the evidence is, is fairly clear on that. In the long run, I think everybody loses from, from a, a trade war. There are no real or clear winners from, from a trade war. Jean-Paul Lamb has been with us, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Waterloo, formerly an Assistant Chief Economist at the Bank of Canada. Jean-Paul, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You might remember us talking to Nicole Wellwood. She is the mother of Evan Leversage and... This was uh, an incredible story. Uh, This mother of Evan made Christmas come early before he passed away, and then that was made into a Bollywood movie. Her story inspired another. And uh, not only did she get to go to see the premiere in India, but the film was also brought here to St. George so the town could watch. An incredible story that's uh, come full circle. Nicole Wellwood is with us now. Nicole, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hi, Scott. You must be just amazed when you sit and, and, and look at how this, the, the route this journey has taken for you. It's pretty incredible, I'll say that. I never thought in a million years that almost three years later, that all this stuff would be going on. Um, but it is, needless to say, pretty incredible because it does help his legacy, which will in turn help children uh, like Evan. So so uh, to those who may have uh, missed this story first time around, tell us about Evan. Tell us what happened. Um, so Evan was diagnosed with a brain tumor when he was two. Um, he did some aggressive treatments, 72 rounds of chemotherapy, uh, had two good years, after those good years, his tumor ended up growing and transitioning to a high-grade tumor. Uh, so he did 30 rounds of radiation and chemotherapy, 
and it proved to have worked, but um, eventually the tumor did grow. And when it grew again, um, it was very aggressive and started to spread, and at which time Evan was informed his time was limited and that we should be making a bucket list. So that's what we did. How did you make him aware of this? You know what? Evan was always very knowledgeable of his disease. Um, We always referred to it as a lump in the head. Uh, You know, I never really sugarcoated anything from him because he was diagnosed with this at two. So to me, I felt the best thing I could do as a parent was just be upfront and real. Uh, So that's what I did. And, you know, it proved to always work to my advantage because Evan never really showed fear because he always knew going ahead. We always were very prepared for what he was going to be facing. Um, So, yeah. So this was normal for him, I guess, for lack of a better word. He knew what was going on. Yes, very much so. Like the hospital life and MRIs every 12 weeks and, you know, hospital being, you know, home, second Mm. home. This was his normal. He wasn't used to play dates or, you know, going to school or any of that. Um, So that was his routine in life. When did you realize you you only had a limited time left with him? It would have been about the end of September 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, he, He went back to school for grade two, and he had got up one morning, and he just made about two falls coming to get ready for school. And I knew just then that something was off with his balance. Mm. And so that was usually an indication that something was wrong with the tumor, in which case we did an MRI, and that's when we had learned um, that things did not look good and that we should be making a bucket list and making what was best of our time with Evan. How do you bring that up to Evan? How do you say bucket list? You know what? Like being real with him the whole time, once again, that goes hand in hand because when he seen how... devastated, I guess for the better term, I was, I didn't want him to ever believe that I was devastated because of him. So we had to explain to him why I was upset. And we basically said, you know, your medicine, it didn't work. And, you know, this is the situation we're in. You're going to end up having to go to heaven kind of thing. Mm. Um, And, you know, he just accepted it and you know like he rolled with it and I just said to him like Evan I can't you know give you more time I don't know what we have to deal with but I said let's just do whatever you want and what's left of the time and so he wanted to go to the movie with his best friend he wanted to have a sleepover with his best friend because you know Evan wasn't accustomed to that those were normal Mm. things for other children not so much for Evan so it was more about making memories for Evan a lot of his wishes he wanted to go to Niagara Falls and it was just different things, like favorite restaurants he loved. So, And how did the whole Christmas thing come up? You know what? Evan always loved Christmas. I think it was always the you know vibe Christmas gives off about family and everybody coming together, Santa Claus, the stories, the food. And that was just always been a huge draw for Evan. Um, and so when I had met with his doctor and my social worker, I had simply said, you know, will he be here at Christmas? Because your mind's kind of racing at this time. You're making a yeah. bucket list. Your child's on limited time. Like, how much time is limited? And they're not able to give me an exact time. So I was trying to feel it out, in a lack of better words. And so they said, you know, if Christmas is important, you should bring it early. And so that was October that they're referring to. And that's just exactly what happened. So obviously you decided to give Evan Christmas in October, knowing he may not reach December. How did it get from that thought 
to where it ended up. How, how did the town get involved? How, what, was your, what was your initial plan? You know what? My initial plan, after I had that meeting, I literally went in the hallway and made a call to my cousin and said, we have to get all of the family, like everybody together. We're celebrating Christmas early. Can you help me just pull all the family together? And that was my one request. It was never to get this big, massive thing going on. Um, we had actually went off to Niagara Falls, and I got a phone call while Niagara Falls from a local police officer in town here, Ken Johnson. And he had basically said, you know, this is what's going on in town. And I had no idea what was going on in town at this time. So needless to say, I was a little So what, what, what was going on in town? Well, what did he tell my you? Cousin, so my other cousin had came to St. George and had printed off a, flower, uh, a flyer saying one last Christmas and start handing it out to like local businesses in town. And so one of the local businesses, they had seen this flyer and she posted it to Facebook and it just went like wildfire. And, you know, by that time I had CHCH tracking me down Niagara Falls with Evan, who's kind of wondering like, well, I'm here like vacationing. Why are these people kind of <laughs> wanting to see me? Yeah. So he had no idea what was going on at the time. I was just getting wind of what was going on. And, you know, we came back to St. George, and that weekend they had the, um, everybody came downtown to decorate the downtown stretch. So, you know, and from there it just continued to... So so tell everybody what happened. So everyone along the main street, the stores started to what? They started to decorate. They brought out all their Christmas stuff. Um, You know, a lot of the town was fundraising. There was a parade that was being organized. So there was a lot of things going on at this time. Um, by this time when Evan's story had kind of got out, people started sending Evan mail. So every single day, the mailman would come to our house and mm. he would have baskets of mail. And Evan would really? be sitting in, yeah, he'd be like, Evan had a lazy boy, uh, boy chair and he'd be just sitting there and he would just be like grinning because he was so, you know, excited and it made him so happy. Like, oh my goodness, like, well, this is all for me. Um, he'd never seen anything like it. So and what was it, was it like incredible. for him to, what was it like for him to get the letters and read them? You know what? That was one thing that I totally will always remember about the Christmas. With Evan in the mail, even though there was such a large amount of it, he would have his PSW, his nurse, myself, his grandmother, like all these people that were around him at the time, he'd always want every single letter wrote like or read to him so that he was able to, you know, listen. And even, you know, when he went into hospice, we continued that routine with him. So, you know, it was really incredible, the response that he got to those letters. It really warmed his heart, and you could see that on his face. What was the parade like? You know what? It was incredible. It was simply... This is a full-blown Santa Claus parade. It was, and a lot of it was kind of hidden from me, so I didn't know the gist of how big it was going to get. Like, you know, I knew certain details like oh we're going to tour around in an OPP car before the parade and you know he's going to become an honorary police officer and such like I knew about things like that but I didn't actually know about what you know the depth of it would be and you know when that got rolling (laughs) it was absolutely incredible and you know I look back at some of the footage and Evan's smile Mm. he's just (laughs) he's beaming like it looks like the happiest moment in his life because he's just that smile if it could just, you know, it was amazing. So uh, what happened after the parade? So basically after the parade, his health did take a really rapid decline. Um, 
pretty much not about days after the parade. Um, and you can actually see that because one of the scenes at the end of the movie, Uma is, um, it's not exactly the way it played out, but that Evan did, he ended up having a moment where he had lost consciousness and had went limp in my arms. And so, you know, <laughs> when his health took a decline, it actually really hit me hard. We ended up moving him to a hospice here, Stedman Community Hospice. Um, and that's where he spent the remainder of his time uh, under the phenomenal care of their team. Uh, you know, and we made the best of what time we had left with him. We truly did. Like he, you know, every single day we tried to make some sort of memory, uh, no matter where we were. Hmm. So. So how did it get from that to Bollywood? How did you, how were you first notified of this? About a year and a half ago, he reached out to me over Facebook and he basically had just said that, you know, I had came across Evan's feed uh, or, you know, in the news feed on Facebook, I came across Evan's story and, you know, I was inspired so much so to write a movie called Uma and he's like, I'm going to be getting uh, the filming process soon. He's like, I want you to come to the premiere and I was like, okay, I was kind of in shock sitting here, you know, in St. George, uh, thinking to myself, there's an India director that has, you know, wrote a movie based on, you know, what happened here and being inspired and, and by this, the event. And this isn't Evan's story. This is another story fictitious based on and inspired by Evan's life. Exactly. So right. more inspired by, but there are, yeah. you know, bits and parts that kind of overlap that, you mm. know, if you know the story well enough, like Evan's story, you can see that he's kind of duplicated some areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so you you went over there for the premiere, correct? And you, I did. I understand you kept in touch as well during the production of this. What's, oh yes. What yeah. sort of what sort of information? Uh, uh, the reasoning for keeping in touch? Did he ask you questions? Was he just keeping you abreast of of where the production was? Talk a little bit about that. So basically, you know, he always wanted to, he, he always says, like, I was holding your hand um, throughout the movie process from afar because, you know, he was gaining his own fuel for filming through what I was telling him. Mm. So we were kind of working together. Like, I kept feeding his imagination, which then in turn, when he got behind the camera, you know, he was able to twerk some things that, you know, he thought would be better suited for the movie. So we kind of played as a team here. And then, you know, the film kind of just got to life and, you know, it's brought us to this moment now. Did, did it surprise you how passionate he was about this story? You know, it did because I think more or less he's so far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to believe that, you know, a person from a different culture, you know, so far away would be so inspired to do such an incredible act um, as right Uma. And then, you know, for him to reach out to me over Facebook to share this with me, that even speaks that much more volume. So what was it like for you to go there and watch the movie? I understand you, you had to read subtitles, obviously. What, what was this like for you? What was the experience like? You know what? It was absolutely incredible. Um, I can't say enough about it. Like the moment I land in Calcutta, I was just blown away because it's so different than what I'm used to here. Yeah. Um, the welcome we got into their city was incredible. Uh, and, you know, so once I re- got there, um, he had the special screening um, for me that was already planned. And that night was the very first night that I was able to see Uma. What's that like? What was that experience like for you? <laughs> you know what? It was something that you'd have to be there to see because, honestly, I didn't know what I was getting into. And, you know, I knew 
that people were aware that I was in India. And so they escorted me into, you know, the Cineplex where this movie was being shown. And not a word of a lie, there are armed guards. And it was crazy the amount of, um, you know, security that was at the event. Now, however, they had all the cast mm-hmm. and actors and stuff from the movie there, a lot of, you know, film people. And it was the media. It kind of was very similar to Christmas here <laughs> in wow. October. Yeah, it yeah. was just cameras, flashes, and, you know, the response and the welcome that evening. Like, everybody just wanted to, you know, hug me and, mm. you know, tell me how they were inspired, you know, after learning about this story. Um, because, you know, as filming was going, uh, he was always telling them about Evan. So right. they were very much well-versed in what happened here. Hmm. So, what did you think about when the movie ended? When it was over and you're just taking a breath and trying to suck all this in, what were your feelings? I am not even going to lie to you. I kept it together for majority of the movie, but then the end, the way it just ends, and then it goes into a slideshow of Evan. At that moment, it literally just hit me like a ton of bricks, um, wow. sitting there in Calcutta, you know, and I'm not with Evan, and this is years after his passing, and, and this is all real now. Like, this isn't just a conversation over Facebook or yeah. email, and I just broke down, and I couldn't even get my composure. There was silence in the whole cinema. Um, you know, the star, Sarah, uh, you know, who plays Uma, her... Um, family and herself came up and you know they all embraced me in a hug and wow. I, you know I expressed to her and I said like you did a phenomenal role you know mm. for being so young and playing such a phenomenal part in this movie she did incredible and you know just to be there with them and you know Srijit had come up after he you knew he had let um, some of the movie guests go and he came up and we just all kind of sat there in silence we all are crying and that moment was just so impacting and real and raw. That night, I don't think there was very many dry eyes. Didn't matter if you were female, male. It's just that's how moving the story is. I don't think there's many dry eyes now. <laughs> what was it like when you brought this or when it was brought to St. George? You know what? It was incredible. It's something that I have wanted to do since I watched the movie. You know, when I was in Calcutta, I got to go and see the reaction um, after people got to see the movie in cinemas. And it was amazing to see the reaction. So I wanted to see the reaction of my own hometown. And when I brought it here, people were just moved. And, you know, there was children there, people of all ages, to be honest. And we just sat there in silence and we watched it as a community. And once again, the tears and it's even more specialer because once we had watched it in St. George on the Friday, we had taken the movie to St. Mary's and they had a viewing in St. Mary's because hmm. I grew up in Perth County. So Evan had a lot of, you know, attachment to that place too. And then after that on the Saturday, we did the Art Gallery of Ontario did a screening at the Jackman Hall. So it was quite emotional to see the response of people in Ontario locally that had impact in the story. And, you know, I, all the feedback I'm getting is people are just amazed. They just, nobody can stop talking about this film. They just want to see it again. Hmm. Yeah. And especially after all that the town did for Evan, it, yeah. it must have been amazing for everyone in town to watch this. 
You know what? It absolutely was. Um, and I think what was even more touching with all these events is there's two of them that had tickets um, for admission. The St. George one was free. However, we were encouraging donations. Um, so all events, all proceeds were donated to Evan's Legacy. And then the St. George one, it was split between Evan's Legacy and the hospice here in Brantford, uh, the Stedman Hospice. Hmm. So it was really special for us. Have you had a chance to process all of this yet? You know I what? I mean, you know, you showed um, it in St. George last month, but still, I mean, where's your... We actually was last your... week for St. George on Thursday, so, yeah. So, so uh, where's your head now? How do you feel now? You know what? Right now, I'm in the midst of just... I'm still trying to process everything, like, on the fact that, oh my gosh, I went to India... That was all real because that was an experience all in itself mm. um, because eventually, I don't know if it was because, you know, I have blonde hair. I noticed people don't have blonde hair in mm. India. And so, but people, they knew who I was because yeah. of the movie and the people were reaching out to me or they'd want to like take a picture with me or they'd want to, you know, touch Evan's baby and stuff like that. So mm. it was a very impacting adventure. Um, and right now I'm just trying to process everything that's happened you know, kind of tidy up the ends. You know, Uma is off to a fantastic start. It's pretty much hit uh, blockbuster status. Really? So, yeah, like it's in its sixth week, and it is still going strong. I just got a message from a man in Australia, I think it was, and it was shown in Sydney and Melbourne, and the response there was incredible. He actually wants to send me a banner because the guests were signing messages to me that they wanted to send back to St. George. So Anything about... Anything regarding a North American release of this? You know, I, I am not too sure. Um, you know, I, I think he's just kind of seeing yeah. the response it's going to get. And so far, from the festivals to the screenings, mm. the response has been incredible. Um, so, you know, right now, I think we're all just going to sit back. We're going to let the love continue for this film. Um, for myself now, it moves on to phase two, which is now I start work with the second director who is making the second film about Evan. So we start whoa, meeting. Whoa, uh, what, what, what's, whoa, what's all this? What? what, what yeah. you, there's another one in the works? Yeah. Yeah. What can you tell us? Um, so basically, there is a French director, uh, and so the movie will be done in the French language. Uh, it will be the Christmas, so the parade and mm. the terminally ill child. It will be more um, centered around the real actual events of what was going on. It is still a film that's going to be based on what happens when um, you know community and people come together, the best of humanity. It's still going to be that you know feel good vibe, right. not centered around you know death yeah. and gloominess. Right. Uh, so you know, yeah. So we're going forward with that, and. I'm excited. Like, I, I'm actually what do you, really super exciting. What do you think Evan would be thinking now? You know what? I always think to myself, what would he be thinking? And I kind of go back to a memory I have of him the day after the Christmas parade. And I was looking at YouTube videos and he kind of woke up and he looked at me and he's like, eyes on YouTube? <laughs> like, oh my gosh. I'm like, yes, buddy, you are. Like, he was just, I don't think he ever understood the magnitude of what happened at Christmas. He just thought that, like, lots of people loved him in his world. It was just, lots of people love me. Um, but his legacy has become so big, far aside from the research part, that now it's becoming, you know, the best of humanity and what happens when we all come together. And, you know, 
about being brave in very hard times. So uh, it's we're, incredible. Nicole, unfortunately, we're all out of time. Website okay. we can go to to find out more or anything regarding Evan's legacy or such? Um, there's a page, Evan's Journey with Childhood Cancer, Evan's Legacy, or you can go to the Brain Tumor Foundation of Canada and type in Evan's Legacy, and it will bring you up to his page with them. Nicole Wellwood is with us, mother of Evan, uh, the young boy who made uh, Christmas, or the mother of the young boy who made Christmas come early and then inspired a Bollywood movie. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing the story again. I know it's painful for you, but my goodness, so inspiring. Good luck to you moving forward. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.